Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who is world famous for designing poorly and dangerously designed balconies. I am the Adam Glass, and yes, I like to build a house that interior-wise appears to be 500 feet tall. And <laughs> it's also just a, basically put, a death trap. At all <laughs> put railless balconies. Uh, in which the only thing stopping someone from jumping out the window is some potted plants that they could trip over, presumably. And really, it's the a miracle is, no it's one's ever died in on both them. both directions. What makes it fascinating <laughs> is it is equally deadly in every direction. You could fall right, backwards and right. roll down the stairs, presumably, to your death. You could fall forwards out the yes. window, presumably, to your death. You could fall sideways right. onto whatever the fuck was over there. I think it's a door. I mean, it's just, every part of it's dangerous. <laughs> every part of it is dangerous, and that's why the Adam Glass uh, Contractors LLC uh, builds them very everywhere. Popular, just it's very, very popular. Very popular. Look, looking if you to have an ex cause somebody, a member of your family, to die in if a you, horrible accident, right. call us. If you uh, if you have a current wife that you would like to be your ex wife by any means possible. <laughs> Uh, except through, except off. through direct action. Except through direct action. <laughs> Mind you, you could just divorce her, but that's not an option. Need her to fall to her death accidentally? We got you covered. Yes. Like, if mean, you if you purposefully design a situation in which someone will accidentally die, uh, but. Uh, but on its surface, there is nothing inherently dangerous. Uh, no, that's 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 a lie because on its surface, this this area is inherently it's patently dangerous. dangerous. It yeah, is. no, it, it is. But then you yeah. get into this weird thing. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like it's it's obvious. And if you requested that it be made, it, we get into a weird question of intent, right? Of like, well, why All did I'm you why did is, you request the balcony with no railings, sir? And then you all I'm me. saying is, ultimately, ultimately, this woman's death is the fault of the man who built the house. Yeah, clearly. No, he's, a, he's a criminal. She like, didn't the, even the actually fall off that balcony. She didn't even yeah. actually fall off that balcony. But whoever whoever designed <laughs> that still staircase. A criminal. He's still a criminal. He's still a he's fucking still a criminal. criminal. The sad thing yeah. is, you and I were having a conversation before this all started about the fact that, like, I have been, in my life, as, an, as a fucking adult, been in houses with that as a thing that exists in the house on more than yeah, one not occasion. the not the giant marble staircase that's that's like four stories tall but no the, no, 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 the, no no not, not that, that you mean the, the weird balcony a lot of no it's, it's it's actually fairly common it's fairly common especially in in what are called mcmansions you know those those yeah, yeah. big suburban houses that that cover the entire plot because no one wants to mow their lawn uh so you've got like a four-car garage and a great room where it's your living room is two stories tall and, and you've got a big entry foyer where the stairs go up and above the door, because the stairs are so large, there's there's a, a small fucking balcony with balcony no railing area. And then people put yeah. the fucking Christmas and, trees on it. It's and people put, put plants up they want something to be in that space, so they put plants up there often or or uh, or a Christmas tree when appropriate. Uh, or when inappropriate yeah, because, you know, like these are the same people yeah, who don't want to move the lawn. You don't want um, yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to give that tree back down. You just <laughs> I, spend twenty I just minutes turn getting the lights out off. It's not a Christmas tree anymore. It's just a pine tree, dude. Right. <laughs> just, just close the blinds. You're fine. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just, just on a window for six months of the year. Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Are we using it to buy mansions with weird, dangerous balconies? I mean, if they give us enough right money, I think <laughs> I think ultimately the goal is if we get for enough For you supporters, to buy a big mansion with a weird balcony that you can murder your wife on? Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> I don't want to it murder my out. wife. I want her to accidentally <laughs> fall to her death. Right, right, right. Uh, you want to set up an accidental death. I understand. Yeah. <sighs> I don't even necessarily want that. I would prefer if she just left on her own accord and gave me my freedom. I just... If it happens, it happens. That's all I'm saying. Right. I'm just saying there, <laughs> now, are, no, there are no railings in my house. That's all I'm saying. No. The actual, the actual support from, from our Patreon, Patreon at home slash Lost in Criterion, goes to keep us going. Uh, and keeps our, our server bills. We are in the process of switching over to a new host. Uh, hit hit a, a couple of snagbacks on process. that. It is a laborious process uh, because the the importation did not bring in any of the tags or the uh, actual body of the post. So I've needed to go individually copying and pasting a lot of information, Um, which is admittedly less tiresome than individually uploading all of the the files. But but, uh, it's still still a bit uh, annoying. Anyway. Uh, Patreon.com, uh, for just a dollar a month, you not only help us continue doing this work, uh, but you uh, get some bonus content. We do a non-criterion film over there every month uh, of varying quality. Sometimes it's something that maybe should be in the Criterion collection, like a Louis Malle documentary or Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, sometimes we do something that is literally the worst movie we have ever seen, like <laughs> Which is some uh, sort of weird Will Ferrell's why Kicking and Screaming. Destroyed and we should just not watch any more films. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, weird. That you never want to watch another movie. Uh, <laughs> Kicking and Screaming ruins movies for, <laughs> forever. For everybody. For Every movie for everyone forever. Yeah. Uh, God, what a bad movie. Yeah. Holy shit. It's, it's a very bad movie. Like, I, 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 uh, every time we talk about this, I, it's actually become a form of trauma for this for us as the, pod, as the host of this podcast because – Every time I th- we do an intro, it comes up, and every time I have to think about it, and it's right. like, "What? Right? I'm the so fuck sorry. even happened here?" Yeah, we've we've watched plenty of movies, sort of in the middle. Uh, you know, we've done uh, Aliens, we've done uh, Critters. Uh, <laughs> Aliens two. is not in the middle. Let's be clear uh, here. Aliens is fucking amazing. Aliens is a very good movie. Yeah, uh, we've done uh, we've done things like Monster Squad or uh, Ready Player One. Uh, which are yeah, nostalgia trips in their own respective ways. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Monster Squad, and... when you're nostalgic for weird, weird sexualizations <laughs> of 12-year-olds. <laughs> Classic Anyway, we have a lot of fun right conversations there. over there. Um, we uh, we try, to get, uh, try to get guests over there a little bit more often since we only do one a month. And uh, our, our friend Donovan Hill has been on a lot of episodes over there. They've been really fun. Our... our uh, friend uh, 
Stephen Goldmeyer has been over on a, on a, on a good chunk of episodes there. Uh, one of my favorite episodes we ever done uh, was actually for one of Stephen's, uh, possibly Stephen's very much favorite movie. Uh, we talked about Now You See Me with him, yeah, uh, which was a very fun time as well. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of good episodes over there, and just a dollar a month not only gets you access to uh, that entire back catalog, uh, but also you get to vote on what we're going to do next. Uh, I put together a little list every month, uh, usually themed for four items, and then item number five is always, always, always Kazam, the 1996 Shaq starring uh, children's masterpiece, masterpiece, um, ma- children's masterpiece. <laughs> Compared to some of the other movies we've watched, specifically <laughs> yeah, all, the one we've already talked the about. The whole fucking thing is relative. Yeah. yeah. Compared to Kicking uh, Screaming, Masterpiece. But yeah, we have fun with that over there uh, and uh, would love to love to get your support and uh, let you hear some of that. Uh, for a little extra, uh, $5 a month, we like to thank uh, those supporters on air. Uh, so thank you, Adam Speakerman and Kevin Little, for your $5 supports. Yeah, thank you. A little above that, we do something that I think is really really special pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently and uh, i get it printed up on a postcard write a little thank you note and mail that off to those supporters <laughs> ten dollars above that's what we do yeah we uh, no you get a postcard a month uh i'm usually way behind on it and i am especially way behind this month because i was in the hospital for three days <laughs> i, I kind of i it's while i did not injure my dominant hand it is still hard to write on a postcard when you can't uh, can't get your non-dominant hand in a position to hold the postcard still while you're trying to write, I think you should. So, I should. Uh, I think you should have leaned into it and just signed it with your teeth. Maybe. Like, maybe. Be like, I uh, have a hand, but I'm not going to use this either. <laughs> in solidarity for the other one, pen yeah. and teeth. Uh, I suppose that's what I should have done. Uh, but yeah, uh, and we mail those off and. Um, yeah, I really love I love doing it. I I believe so the people who get them love receiving them. Um, but uh, we're also I'd like to thank the people at that level right now, and thank you to Jason Westhaven and Michael McGrath for yes, for your you. supports at ten dollars and above. Uh, this week we are talking about a Carol Reed movie. Uh, this is our second Carol Reed movie. Um, I believe it's only our second. I fool. Uh, you're barking up the wrong tree here. I, I know. I know that was the. The wrong way. Uh, yeah, yeah. We've only watched The Third Man before. Um, we will watch, I believe, two other of his films. Um, yeah, Night Train to Munich is number 523, and Odd Man Out uh, is number 754. Odd Man Out was the movie he made directly before this one. Uh, and that run of uh, of Odd Man Out... Uh, the Fallen Idol and the Third Man uh, is uh, considered his best run of films, but but maybe maybe possibly the best run, the best three movie run of any director in history. Um, Odd Man Out's a very good movie. Uh, the Third Man, I am well, yeah, firmly on record as saying, is my favorite movie. Period. Amazing, yeah. And uh, and this is really great too. Uh, like the third man, this is based on a short story by uh, by Graham Greene. Um, Greene predominantly wrote a, a lot of like modernist, uh, you know, uh, dealing with with post religious angst sort of stuff. Uh, but he wrote he wrote 
a few short stories that he called, uh, I believe his term for them was entertainments. Um, I don't know <laughs> okay, for his okay. own entertainments or if that's just what he thought uh, the frivolousness that he was writing should be called. Um, but among them were the short story this is based off of, The Basement Room, and The Third Man, <laughs> which, which seems seems very weird. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, a producer actually put Reed in, in touch with Graham Greene uh, for this, and, and Greene uh, adapted the screenplay himself, uh, which I believe he did for The Third Man, too. Um, and uh, yeah, um, was nominated for, uh, for the screenplay for Greene and for director um, Oscar um, for Reed, uh, but I don't believe they won for this. Uh, though it definitely won the uh, Best Film Award for at the BAFTAs that year. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's also known as the Lost Illusion, which makes it seem like a like a magician mystery movie. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, but uh, but yeah. Um, not that the basement room is a better title ever either. Um, Reed did make a couple of changes. One, the title, because the basement room is 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 a dumb a dumb title for this. Right. Um, and the fallen idol is is not not a lot better, but but I suppose it's maybe a little it's better, a little it's more a sense little to the plot. Um, well, it, the other, it, well, the, other the, major... the beauty of the fallen idol is that it makes it sound like it's a radical, a completely different movie. Until you actually get right, into it, right. you're like, "Oh, I see what I see what you're doing here." Right. I was like, "Is this um, what? Is, what is this movie that like? It's like, ah, oh, it's a movie. I. It feels like to me, the Fallen Idol feels like the translation of a of a bad Japanese like drama that would be on TV now. Right. Just a totally different right. understanding of the word idol and everything like that. But like, I was like, right. "What is going to happen in this movie?" And I got in. And I was like, "Oh, I got what you're doing here. Okay, yeah." Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. The Venn diagram of films that could possibly be called The Fallen Idol <laughs> or pretty, The Lost Illusion. Wide, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of overlap there. Uh, but at least this falls among the two of them. Yeah, <laughs> it is technically it is uh, it is one hundred percent accurate. And as soon as you're in, you're like, oh yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. this is a Fallen Idol for um, sure. Anyway, uh, the other change uh, made was the ending. Uh, Apparently, in the uh, in the Green short story, um, and again, Green was adapting this himself. Uh, I believe it, Reed made the change, but but Green was was certainly on board with it. Um, it's not like they got mad and never worked with each other again because they made the Third Man <laughs> later this year. So, um, but uh, but the ending uh, in the original ending to the short story is my understanding that uh, that our Butler gets. Uh, arrested uh that the uh you know the the final moments of this movie is the little boy finally insisting on telling the truth when it would be least opportune for him to actually tell the truth uh which which is something interesting that the movie does and we'll talk about that right. more later uh but it's my understanding that in the short story he successively convinces the police that that he was the one who broke the pot and therefore they continue to arrest Baines right um, instead of instead of uh deciding that that his story checks out uh but yeah that's 
Green calls these his entertainments or whatever, uh, which is interesting because it, it suggests that he doesn't think that this or uh, or the third man have the same existential weight that that his other works have, right? Right. But but both of those movies are very modernist or even postmodernist in their philosophies. You know, this is this is about the nature of trust and authority and and right. what truth is, right? At its very yeah, it heart. Is. It is. And yes, it's a, I mean go ahead. It's about an 8-year-old discovering that, but it's it's still about that and it's about that as much as the third man is about that too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's, that's true. I, I mean, I think I can see though. I mean, I I know where like it's not that hard to figure out where they're coming where he's coming from though. Like it's you get in that thing where like it is still at its heart like for somebody looking at it in a specific way is just a murder mystery, right? And, yeah. And 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 to a greater or lesser extent, like every murder mystery is about the nature of truth and authority, right? True. But I mean, like, there is no a murder mystery where one does not explore the nature of truth. Is like, well, <laughs> like it's like two and a half minutes long. <laughs> it's it's like a really bad <laughs> Law and Order episode where it's just like, well, we saw a guy murder that other guy. I guess we know the answer about who murdered that other guy. We we're t- book him, Dano, and then it's just over. Like it's like you know, I mean, not I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish what this is. It's just you know, that's. Yeah. If you view your own work from the wrong angle or you view this work from the wrong angle, that is what it is. And I, on more than one occasion when I was watching it, was tempted to do that and did do it occasionally. Occasionally I shifted my viewpoint to be like, this is just a murder mystery. Like, this is like – and and honestly speaking, viewed in the wrong direction, it's like high school play level murder mystery. (laughs) <laughs> That's fair too. That like, is, I'm, I'm not trying to. It's not a very it, like, deep it, mystery, right? Exactly. It's like it's it's all about the way people perceive it, because the actual mystery is very surface level. You know what I mean? Like, right. and these are shitty detectives and shitty cops who are not doing a good job <laughs> of investigating at all. Right. Which you know, like, right. but that's a thing that shows up in high school play esque murder mysteries, right? Like. Oh, the cops have to be but they are, bad at it because, like, this, otherwise there's no mystery here. But they also kind of reflect they reflect a, a state of uh, of the criminal justice system, I think, that we still encounter in that we're not looking for the actual truth. We're looking for the narrative that can be built on the evidence we can present. Right. Right. right absolutely. And those those should be as close to one another as possible. They often are not. Uh, and you know, no one, no one can know the full extent of an action. Um, <clears throat> you know, unreliable narrator, you, you know, Baines himself doesn't know the full extent of what happened. Right. Right. But, uh, and, and Baines is the closest thing to a witness they have, you know, the truth cannot be known, but, uh, unless they get meta and watch the movie themselves. Uh, but, uh, oh God, no, <laughs> no! They've gone <laughs> fully fucking Deadpool at this point. Yeah, no. but uh, but yeah, that's the nature of the criminal justice system. You know, you right. build, you build what you can, and there is a difference between the truth and what 
a court case finds to be the truth. Um, the hope, again, is always that they're close, but very often they are not. I, one thing I did want to want to say, though, is that skeletally, this movie is the third man with uh, with yes. the little boy as Holly, uh, who and and the third man could just just as easily be called uh, the fallen idol because it's Holly, Holly trying to defend his best friend from charges that he ultimately killed children and committed a war crime. Right. <laughs> uh and uh yeah and running around and trying and then of course you know the third man has a has a very different ending to this but but it's still it's still about a naive person uh with very black and white ideas of of the world uh interacting with uh with his idol um it just happens that at the beginning of the narrative of the third man that idol is already dead and is being impugned by uh right by by third parties, by the police, and eventually in the third man. You know, I guess it has a more true to the original ending of this than than the third man has, in that in the end, Holly decides that <coughs> uh, his friend really is a bad guy uh, and that the world's broken because his friend <laughs> really is a bad guy. Uh, but yeah. Um, anyway, I... Uh, the kid here is very interesting because uh, Reed cast him because of the accent, because he wanted he wanted someone with a, a child with a slight French accent who could speak English. So they got uh, you know French French ish kid. <laughs> uh, but uh, he uh, he couldn't act. Like period. In fact, he did not. He did not continue acting at all. Um, yeah, I can kind of uh, see that. That's that's a yeah. thing in this movie is that he's not a great actor. Read like uh, Alexander Corda, the uh, the studio head, who is also the person who introduced Reed to uh, to Graham Greene, uh, passed along a picture of the kid, and Reed decided that that he looked like Philippe. Um, uh, even though the picture was like five years old at that point. The kid was three in the picture. Um, yeah. And they agreed to, uh, you know, his parents agreed to let him do the film. Uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, he, he after this, would eventually become a, uh, a tax consultant for PricewaterhouseCooper in, in New York City um, until 1997. And after he retired, he became an uh, ordained, uh, ordained uh, deacon. I believe of the Anglican Church, oh and uh, ended up ser- serving as a chaplain uh, in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, at a hospital. <laughs> but yeah, uh, there is um, there's sort of a behind the scenes uh, bit of a lot of people talking about Reed in the movie, um, and uh, that's that's on the Criterion DVD. And uh, I think I missed it, um, but I think the person they're talking to, I guess everyone's just very old, right? <laughs> this is because yeah. the every this video was shot in like the nineties. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Ralph Richardson talking about working with uh, working with the kid, uh, and uh, 
just describing about how terrible an actor he was and yeah. and how uh <clears throat> how Reed was just infinitely patient not just with the kid but with all his actors um one of the people in this documentary describes how how Reed would uh would carry a nail in his pocket and uh if children. a scene no 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 no, no if a scene started sense. to go south uh he would drop the nail call cut and and say can we get can we get quiet in here uh so so not blame anyone for for mm. the noise but use that as an excuse to cut and then go have a quiet conversation not not redirecting the actor necessarily but saying hey how about you know since since the cut was was called why don't we try that again with a little different take um you know they describe him as not not giving a lot of direction to actors and letting actors do their thing uh and uh you know they they also say that reed had uh had two two pieces of advice to someone who asked him how to make movies was never humiliate an actor and never cut until they left the frame. Um, so he, he just seems like a really good guy, yeah. uh, which is probably why Orson Welles hated him. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, famously the third man, Orson Welles did not, uh, right. did not like the, uh, you know, he didn't even come back for, to shoot the final scene. Those are Carol Reed's hands through the grate. Um, because Orson Welles refused to go back down in the sewer. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but Reed also knew what he wanted. And, uh, you know, he insisted on this kid. Uh, he also insisted on Orson Welles. And everybody told him that Orson Welles was uh, uh, for the third man. And everybody said Orson Welles is, is you know, he's uh, box office garbage. Because he'd done, you know, he'd, he'd had a few flops recently. And... Yeah, he insisted, and and you know I think Orson Welles, Orson Welles is the third man. Uh, and he's phenomenal right. in that movie, but it was it was the right choice. Uh, anyway, kid was terrible, and uh, week weeks and weeks and weeks of filming, uh, kid couldn't pay pay attention. Would uh, you know would finally be delivering lines and would see his favorite electrician off in the corner of his eye and start, start looking at, looking at him instead of the camera or, or at the other actors. And, uh, and eventually, uh, Reed brought in like a sleight of hand magician to just oh do magic God. for this kid. <laughs> like over the to camera? Get, to like get the, a, like he's a baby? You know, to get the proper facial reaction shots. God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that if like at the tea party, the tea house scene, the magician was just hiding behind the couple. <laughs> But, oh but uh but yeah they uh yeah apparently the kid was just terrible um which which makes it just phenomenal that that Reed was able to get this movie um it's a movie that very much embodies the kid's point of view not only in how the how the plot plays out uh but I also think I think that's one reason this house feels so large inside right why it why it feels like uh, those balconies are five hundred feet off the floor. Uh, it's not right. just it's not just Reed's love of German expressionist film uh, right. and Dutch <laughs> angles and such. Yeah. It's also it's also that this is meant to be this huge space as far as the kid is concerned. Right, and I um, and I think it, it yeah I think 
it's it is actually more than angle. I think it is it is actually it almost. I'm sure it's just a very large house, but like it is scaled. no, it's a, it's a built set. It is right. a built it is, set. It seems so. scaled wrong, actually, like on purpose almost to make us feel like it's right. You know what I mean? It seems. It seems yeah. like for the kid, actually, it's almost out of scale big, right? Like the kid seems small more so than right. he actually is. Like, you know what I mean? It's it's like they upsized everything for some reason. Or not right. for some reason. It's another thing. And I, for the audience. Yeah. I think this is said uh, in the Criterion essay or one of the Criterion essays for this. Uh, so it's not it's not an original thought, but but this film – the way it's shot in this house set, you know, they essentially never leave the house, right? You know, we have a few right. a few things that happen outside the house, but so much of it takes place not just in the house, but in that main entry hall. Uh, and and this house feels like all of Vienna fills in the Third Man. You know, it's just as as uh, weird and and off kilter and uh, right. Uh, you know, it's obviously. Vienna between the wars, they get all the, the the ruins that we go through. So it's it's definitely a different feel, but it's just as large as that Vienna is, really, right? Yeah. And yeah, and it and, helps and that it, it's just a huge house. <laughs> but right. but yeah. Well I mean yeah, it, it you, you get a perspective of scale on this as though like oh, there's whole wings of this house we haven't seen in this movie. Right, like it's just right. the feeling you walk o- you you walk away with. And it's, it's yeah, pretty the geography, the geography of it is, uh, yeah, it's just huge. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> the Wikipedia points out that this is the first notable film that Reed made at uh, Grosvenor Crescent in Belgravia, uh, the London filming location that they used. Uh, and that his uh, his next next film of note made there would be Oliver, twenty years later, the musical version of Oliver. Wow, <laughs> um, which which again you know plays into uh, his use with kids, um, and uh, and there's a story there's a story about Oliver uh, that that one of the actors shares, uh, and how Oliver uh, you know the 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 kid playing Oliver. Um. Uh, was also easily distracted and couldn't couldn't even necessarily keep up with uh, his own backing track, you know, because they pre-record the music and then he sings to it, right. right? But he 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 couldn't even pay attention to that with until until Reed figured out, you know, got in his head. <laughs> another and, another and sleight him. of hand magician. <laughs> another <laughs> another magician or something. Music. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah, just the the stories the stories they share, and obviously they're you know it's it's longtime actor friends of Reed talking about Reed, but but they they're all very glowing about about Reed's patience as a director, uh, which is interesting, and and you know so so often other stories we hear even from even from people who we love and the people who are talking about them love. But but think of the behind the scenes stuff we've heard about, say Bergman, where it's yeah, where right. It's, that's what I yeah. that's where my mind was going. It's like yeah, I mean he, he gets what he wants, but like boy, man, he seems rough to, <laughs> to work for, huh? Yeah, right, right, right. And everybody's on board with what he wants, but still, he's he's yeah, 
you know, he's not even, he's not like abusive to anyone, but he's definitely, definitely, yeah. It's it just still, it seems hard-nosed. like it would be a very hard yeah. day of work, is what I'm saying. It's like, right. when it's all of a sudden, right. it's like, boy, this is a very demanding person. Yeah. Uh, Whereas yeah. Reed, it feels like it's just, it's not a hard day of work. It's just life, you know, goes through. Right. Surprised he, almost surprised he ever got anything done with, with how relaxed he's described as being. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, especially such phenomenal work, you know. He's just, this is such a beautiful film. Um, and yeah. That's, that's very much read. Plot-wise, you know, you said yeah, it's, well, it's not... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have described the plot in, in, in about as much, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, I, it is it It's is not very, a great murder mystery, and ultimately, ultimately it is a murder mystery. And the interesting thing is, you know, we kind of see things happen from the kid's perspective and, and we can know or at least safely assume that Baines didn't push his wife down the stairs. No. Yeah. I mean, we're, 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 we as the audience are dead. Certain we're aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not just because we like Baines as a person. Um, I think, I think if they had left that little bit ambiguous, um, the film might be better for it. It, and it then, might be. You know, it, that, that's possible. I, it's hard to know, yeah. right? Because just like, yeah, but then you lose any dramatic art. Like, ha- we well, get I into think... a weird position because the movie also doesn't end the way the original ending was meant to be, which right. kills it a little bit. I think you sh- he probably should have chosen one or the other. Like, either his culpability in her death should be ambiguous or he should be arrested with just a very high intense amount of uh, dramatic irony, right? Like those are the two right. options that we, we know. Actually we know he's innocent and yeah. yeah. But we um, don't get ARB. I, I just mean, think if they, because like we get very, very, very close to arresting him. Like we, yeah. we as an audience are ready for that injustice to take place. Right. Um, and, and I think in that sense, the movie does build towards that in a way that is fairly satisfying because you're like, Oh no, he's getting arrested and he did not do this. Uh, and then it, but but by kind of killing that at the very end, and let it, instead of letting it be seen through, it does it does reduce it somewhat. Yeah, I just think also you know the narrative that the police put together to let Baines off we know is wrong. Even if we hadn't right. seen that she fell on her own, we know she didn't fall from where they think she fell. So we right. know that's wrong. Uh, and if the movie had just pulled away from uh, or pulled away to uh, the kid's point of view even real fast, um, we could, you know, it, leave that more ambiguous. Um, I think it still would have worked. And I think it, it would have worked better to the audience and better to the sort of uh, to the messages of what what truth is, I think, too. Um, to a certain extent, um, in in leaving it ambiguous to the audience and the audience not knowing, right? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, um, I see where I mean. I agree. It's just you know, it's just you know. I think maybe to a certain extent, you have to wonder if like maybe this is almost kind of has a, a trial run for the third man kind of thing going on. Where it's like, yeah, I, 
movies where your main character is actually a bad guy are pretty hard to get away with in the era that this movie is made. This movie was made, and so that only leaves you with dramatic irony. But then the police are bad in that scenario. You know what I mean? Like the era that this movie is from can present some complications because you someone in a case where they are mistaken someone who should be good is bad you know what i mean either our main character is bad or our the police who are investigating the murder or, or the death are bad right because like oh they should have been able to figure that out and they didn't right um unfortunately this 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 final outcome is the sort of to a certain extent the cop out of that which is like well everybody yeah they got it wrong but they didn't get the meat of it wrong they got the the details of it wrong right 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 yeah um, <laughs> but uh but if the novel or if the short story ends the way it's suggested to us that it ends with uh with them finally convincing uh, Phil to tell the truth and and the truth Phil telling the truth being what gets Bane put away I think that's that's a great ironic ending too that is but, a good ending that is a, that is a but good I prefer ending. we like Bane's you know I think the movie does a good thing in trying to humanize Mrs. Bane's sort of uh, you know in when she's talking to Phil about keeping a secret and sort of reveals what her plan for the next few days is, you know, it, uh, it helps to see her as a person who is also unhappy in her situation, but right. Yeah. I mean, that, see th- this movie could have been a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It could, things could have gone. And much. up until that point has been a lot more unfair to Mrs. Right. Baines. Right. Um, you know, in the same way of like Rebecca, you know, the Hitchcock film, you know where uh, where the the housekeeper is is essentially Mrs. Baines here, um, you know, and always yeah, everything everything Rebecca or our kid here wants to do is met with oh you can't do that and and that's the wrong thing and why is it the wrong thing because I said so and you know it's just this stern off putting right. who's got who's got an idea of the way things should be and this doesn't work into it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, in much the same way, you know, it's it's a longing for for life to be different than how it is, right? Right. Uh, yeah, and that's the humanizing moments of, of both those characters too. Uh, but yeah, Mrs. Baines is mostly, you know, and I guess it's fair. <laughs> it's very much a, a male perspective. That we've got to make Mrs. Baines so utterly terrible from everyone's point of view that we are willing to forgive Baines for going for, after the for, younger woman, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. It, of course, you know. I mean, it is very broken from that perspective, right? Like it. It needs to just. But we get into this, which is why it's good when it pulls back for a second, right? Absolutely. And lets us see is, Mrs. Baines is. Yeah. Though, though the movie will never want to see it, want us to see Baines as a bad guy, period. Right, and one, and it, and it walks a very precarious line in that environment, right? in that yeah. scenario, right? Because it, it 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 does a decent job. Like we don't we don't hate her. We don't 
view him as necessarily being a bad guy. They, you, you, they, they walk that line pretty delicately and get to the point where it's like, well, this is just two very unhappy people who shouldn't be together. Like, right. This is this is a marriage that should just not be happening anymore. Uh, and right. Then, and then you're left with a really weird rabbit hole to go down, which is like, well, so why are they together? Is it is it has society forced them to be stuck together forever, kind of thing? And that, that's a fun that's a fun rabbit hole to go down, right? In your movie about murder mysteries. Is divorce still illegal in England at this time? I don't know, but like, why else would they be married? <laughs> These two right. patently unhappy people. Yeah, I think uh, I think divorce was still technically illegal into the seventies. So, right, so yeah, that. we're definitely we're definitely firmly in that position. Um, yeah. So ultimately, though, it's though I would feel like, I would still. I would still feel like uh, uh, probably adultery is a pretty good grounds for divorce. But right, well, I mean, and presumably, um, like, I mean, presumably, that's what's supposed to happen next, right? Like, but like, you know, whenever in, whenever there's adultery in a movie, or probably presumably in real life, you know, like there's that moment where you've not crossed the boundary into like I'm going to divorce this person. You know what I mean? You're in the, 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 there's that gray zone that exists, especially in movies where they're just angry about it and want to be proved right about it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. want, want to know the truth before, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's especially, you know, it happens in movies all the time, right? Where, like, we as the audience say, like, well, you should just, you know, it's just divorce him and it's over, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you have yeah. grounds to divorce him, it's fine, just go do it. But, like, that's not, and that's not true to true emotional life anyway right for the not really right like you know you've been betrayed and so therefore that that that's a that's a moment of anger right and so yeah you know she responds actually pretty humanly yeah so um so this movie came out in 48 it's actually uh 1937 there was a law change in in england that prior to 1937 a man could get a divorce if his wife committed adultery but if the husband committed adultery, a woman could not petition to, for divorce unless she uh, uh, proved some other extenuating circumstance, uh, such as cruelty or incest, on top that's, of the adultery. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yes. Um, Good old age. So I guess that's 10 years, 10 years on that that change had been made. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily illegal for them to to get a divorce or for her to petition for the divorce. But but certainly, you know, she's also, they are the married co-runners of the household for the French embassy. Right, it and there's a, a whole level of respectability. And, position yeah. And, yeah. and job security thing right. that she wouldn't necessarily want want this to happen either so right and then yeah. and then just though again again she's been betrayed right like she's not clearly not crossed the 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 line of like well now i have to go divorce now i have to go down to city hall or whatever and start filling yeah. out paper, paperwork that's a that's a line that takes a while i think for people to cross right 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 yeah um and as much as Baines might be checked out of the marriage, you know, that doesn't mean that his wife feels the same way about wanting to get rid of him. You know? Right. And that's that's another thing about how how in depth in the view of their relationship we are 
um, with Phil's perspective. You know, we can see we can see Bane says the the henpecked, uh, you know, and she she is emotionally abusive to him from what we've seen, but that might just be how Phil's seeing this relationship. Right, right? yeah, I mean, it's very hard to know, right? We are viewing it from a child's perspective, and children do not understand context that great. That's what I think kids are famous for. Right, so. Exactly. Uh, And they're all very bad at keeping their story straight, so. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> can't really can't really blame the kid on that one either when when Paints himself is very bad at it. Right. Uh, if, if you're going to lie, remember your lie. Though though the movie does do an interesting thing in foreshadowing that, uh because in the first conversation that that Phil has with Baines on screen, uh Baines can't remember the lies he has previously told the kid about his time in Africa. Right. And calling the food chop or whatever. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a well-crafted movie. It really is, even for yeah, I mean, for and, a simplistic. And it's of, because it, it it has a very a fairly simple plot, but like it is very yeah. well put together in 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 a lot of different ways, right? Like I mean, it, it it feels very complete. Like it's very yeah. Like it's it's got those little details that like kind of guide you through. Um, you know what is essentially a murder mystery and stuff, but I mean, I think that the the hardest part for this movie is probably that like, I mean, I don't. When it comes right down to it, like I don't have a ton of like thoughts on it, honestly, because like, it it does play with truth, but like again, it's a well crafted yeah. movie of that sort. But so does every other murder mystery, right? Like, I mean, it's not. It's not really doing anything really substantially special. I mean, other than maybe the child perspective thing, which is somewhat unique. But, like, it's not like this was the first movie to do that. Interesting on that regard, one of the Criterion essays um, focuses on the author had, had first seen this movie when he was about eight years old. And, uh, and it quickly became one of his favorite movies for... Because he related to Phil so, I see that. so that deeply. And and he describes it in a way of of like say how, how you and I described uh you know uh time bandits. You know, you see it at the right age, right. it hits you right. Uh and he talks about, you know, how, how this was you know, in in age where he like Phil was was first experiencing uh that uh adults weren't always right. And adults weren't always truthful, and and there were, you know, uh, there were lies in the world, right? Um, so it's relating to it like that is very interesting. Right. Um, that makes sense. I don't. I don't believe. I don't know if I when I uh, when I was eight years old. I don't think I'd ever be interested in watching this movie, <laughs> like, no matter what. Right. That may also be true. <laughs> yeah. Um, course i also didn't have uh didn't have the sort of parents where where a lot of my friends have where uh my dad never sat me down and made me watch a movie with him that, that right, he loved right yeah so. i mean i you know i did but you know they're not this movie although i mean again right. like 
arsenic and old lace is one that I did that with, with that we did that with. And right. It's it's not the sure. same vein, but it's not that far off. Right, right, right. Yeah, but you know, again, getting back to to this as compared to um, the third man and doing similar things, uh, it is still the realization that adults are not perfect is also reflective of the the loss of authority, right? Uh, that. Uh, that the whole modernist movement is dealing with. So, right. It all, it all plays together. And, and again, I just get the feeling that, that green in calling them, calling them entertainments and making them one-offs, uh, just wasn't as, as into these as he should have been because they're still, they're fantastic stories. They're still dealing with the same themes that the rest of his work is dealing with. So, that's weird to me. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think it just has to do with, like, it, you, you see this with, with art sometimes where, like, he probably engaged with, like, the things that were more, in his mind, high-minded than yeah. this. And, and there's just no, I mean, artists do that sometimes, right? Like, that's, I mean, this is, this is at its heart, a murder mystery, which may, to a certain extent, have a certain, no matter how hard he tried have a certain dime store feel to it right of like right this right. is what they sell in dime stores like it's just is yeah right. i mean it's a very it's a very good one but that doesn't change what it is you know yeah and it's you know it's got that upstairs downstairs thing going on you know this is a story about the butler and the butler didn't do it um which I, I only am now realizing that, that the butler didn't do it rather explicitly. Right. So isn't that something? Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, he's that. Yeah. I, I wonder how long, I wonder how old that cliche is in, in, in. Oh, the butler, the butler did it. And, you know, I, I associate that with, with like Edwardian murder mysteries, you know, the, the right. I'm, so, I'm just curious. You know, like, people exactly, writing in the I, tens and twenties. So, right. I'm just very curious about exactly how old that is, right? Just because it's like, yeah. I mean, people subverting that is obviously a thing that's been going on for a while. But I wonder when that got got its got its kick off. You know, we'll never know because I'm not going to find out. What if I want to find out? No, sorry, I'm not. Well, you can, you can, but if you tell me, we're not friends anymore. I'm going to ruin our friendship. <laughs> I no longer care about this relationship. Take my knowledge. <laughs> uh, one of the earliest examples of the butler committing the murder is a Conan Doyle uh, story called The Musgrave Ritual uh, from 1893. That makes sense. Um, uh, but the butler isn't the primary villain of the story in that one. So Mental Floss also mentions Herbert Jenkins' 1921 story, The Strange Case of Mr. Challoner. Uh, okay, so it's not that old. Yeah. Yeah, so twenty one, you know, old enough compared to this movie that that subverting it was oh, probably yeah, no, already I, for a, sure. a well established trope too. About it. Yeah, like are you just more in my mind? Is it subverting a, a hundred year old trope or a you know twenty yeah. year old trope? Right? Is it, it there is a difference between those two things? Right? And I think twenty is more makes more sense in this context than because at this point almost like. 
you get in at this point in, in history, you almost get to the point where subverting that trope is a trope in and of itself also. And so it's, it's, it's got the, the, it's become turtles all the way down. Um, because <laughs> those are both, tro- they're just, just, they're, there's no way to not trope it. It's basically, you're either doing one or the other. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's honestly at this point, it's, it's sort of a, it's, we, we're in a sort of butler abstinence only sort of education situation here where like, it's best just not to have any butlers at all. Uh, because one way or the other, you're, you're one way or the other, you're troping that butler. Yeah. Uh, the adult world's just complicated, Pat. That's yeah. That's I really mean, either the butler didn't do it or the butler did do it. Therefore, the best choice is always to just have no butlers at all. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, as the as the son of the French ambassador, not having a butler is completely out of the question. So. Right. So eventually, that butler will either murder or not murder someone in the family. Right. Right. Schrodinger's murder. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Really, honestly, the moment you hire a butler, everybody in the family is both dead and alive at the same time. Right. Exactly. This is this is a given. Until you open that locked room, everyone, everyone. Right. I mean, it's 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 essentially the same decision you make if you get a creepy gardener. Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, if you've gotten a gardener who at any point looks through the window with those giant shears and then snips something off, (laughs) everybody in the house is both alive and dead at the same time. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You, I mean, it's just, it's inevitable. So, you know. Right. I mean, somebody's either going to die or not die during the course of do whatever you're... story you're telling. Um, you know. Yeah. Do your a own lawn different, work. A different, do your a own different version of that Schrodinger's butler exists if you hire a sexy maid. But, like, it's not the same thing. <laughs> like somebody is either it's like it's a different version but it's a, it's in the same vein right like it's used as a, it can be used as a as a sort of a related proof having worked in kitchens and and food food and beverage for all my life i can't believe i might even think this but but private chef might be the safest safest oh yeah no they never murder never anybody make. they never they never yeah. murder or don't murder anybody yeah There is there is no private chef trope to uh, to subvert, so apparently not. safe there. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we can probably pull this one to a close. As I already mentioned, we'll see a, a little more from Carol Reed again, but not not until the distant future. We're still, I think, four years out from from our next. Oh, Carol wow, Reed really? Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's something. Um, yeah, but I really is. I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed this movie. I, I, I um, enjoyed it too. Next, I mean, I, I joke about it being just basically a murder mystery, and it is. But like, you know, it's a good one. It's well done. Yeah. I enjoyed watching it. Like, if yeah, this it's entertaining. this is this fits very in my mind very much into the wheelhouse of like if if TMC were still a thing that existed in my life, yeah, and it came on, I would make my children watch it. Well, I would make the older <laughs> one watch there it. You the go. younger one would would most likely do something. Yeah. I would not make a three-year-old watch this, but I'd make a nine-year-old watch this. Um, next week, we'll be talking about a, a 1929 German film. 
Um, Pandora's Ooh. Box by G.W. Pabst. Uh, of Blue Ribbon fame. <laughs> Here's hoping. Anyway, <laughs> same, same this guy. Week I can, we can only hope. Yeah. Uh, this week it's been The Fallen Idol uh, by Carol Reed uh, from 1948. Uh, thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Tori Tari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.